Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Billy Watson TV. It gives me great pleasure once again to have a returning guest on, Mr Sage of Quay himself, Mr Mike Williams. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing well, Billy. Thank you again for having me back on your show. That's awesome, Ali. Keeping track of what you're doing and you've just done another presentation. It's actually revisited a four and a half hour one you done, I think it was in 2020 maybe? Yeah, three years ago. Yeah, um, did the Beatles write their own music? So since then... Some other um, interviews and stuff have come up, so you've went and done an addendum to that, which I've watched a couple of times now. And to me, you've basically blown out of the water, especially when you hear the, the Beatles themselves and George Martin uh, saying their own words, what you've been um, putting out there for the past couple of years. So we'll expand on the points that you maybe start with the points that were originally made and then go into this new stuff. Where would you like to start this discussion? Did the Beatles write all their own music as a topic, but any of it is the real question. Yeah, that is the real question, right? So, yeah, so what happened, Billy, is um, I published the original presentation, Did the Beatles Write All Their Own Music, back on April 1st of 2020. And, uh, you know, there are folks out there that don't understand the true meaning of April 1st. Yep. It ties back to the tarot card. It has a lot of occulted meaning. And uh, Billy is the fool on the hill. This is uh, Billy Shepard, for those that are catching up, know me. Billy Shears, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Billy Shears, <laughs> a.k.a. Paul McCartney. Yeah. And um, the tarot card and the fool, it represents new beginnings and somebody who is willing to take risk in order to capitalize on opportunity. And that's why it was released on April 1st. So I knew a lot of the, uh, a lot of the audience uh, would not get it, but I wasn't really concerned about the audience getting it. I was uh, more focused on Billy and the inner circle understanding why I, I, you know, I put the, or uploaded the video on that day. So since then, I have been putting out a lot of content to, you know, to kind of build upon. Just that just on that note, so in other words, you're kind of acting the way that the so-called Illuminati, whatever, do their things as well, because they time things to calendars and with significant yes. meaning. You know, so people can look at you and say, ah, you're doing this, you must be one of them then, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I get that all the time because they'll look at certain, you know, videos and it has a certain runtime and all that stuff. And, you know, they'll say, oh, the, the runtime totals to the number 11 or it totals to the number six or the, the totals to the number nine. Um, you know, sometimes I will make it total to those numbers. Other times it's just it's coincidental. It just happens to be that way. But um well, yeah, there is, I mean, there, there are using these dates and stuff like that. That is, it's kind of like they they don't own this kind of knowledge. It's there for everyone, and they make it seem it's the dark side doing all the triangles. But that's a p powerful symbol. You know what I mean? These dates and cards they have significance. We can use them too. Yes, exactly. That's the point. The point is, you can use the symbols too, which includes the numbers, and you can leverage your own message the way they go about leveraging their message doing those types of maneuvers you know using occultism using numerology and all that stuff i mean i'm not an occultist but i know enough about their numbers in the numerology to you know to work it so that if i can put a presentation out that can benefit from the numbers then um you know then uh, you know i have done that so you released the first one, did you, on April 1st, 2020? Because you're just in the addendum on April the 1st. 
Yes. So the addendum was also released on April 1st of 2023, which was exactly 36 months to the day. Three plus six equals nine. Yeah. You see? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I have some fun with it. Let's just put it that way. I have some fun with it. They play with the numbers. And uh, when I talk about they folks, I'm talking about the controllers. They paint by the numbers. And, uh, you know, if we... If we go about go about our lives just hiding from the symbolism and not really understanding the true intent of the symbolism, then we're not doing ourselves any good. You see, behind all the symbols, behind all the numbers, Billy, I know you know this. It's about intent. If you have good intent, then good things follow. If you have bad intent, then Bad things follow. It's like when somebody asks the question, is electricity good or bad? Well, it depends on how electricity is being used. If you're going to the electric chair, probably not so good, right? (laughs) But if you need it to light your house, then it's a good thing. But the problem we have in society as a whole is so many folks, they just, they don't understand. They don't understand how the world really works. And you and I talked about this before we started the show. They don't understand that there's a, there's a complete controlling matrix or apparatus that controls this reality from beginning to end, cradle to grave. Yep. <laughs> and so many folks, you know, they just, they, they, they don't understand it. Not only do they not want to, under, do they not understand it, but they also don't want to research it when you try to explain it to them. And I can't tell you how many times uh, when I talk about Tavistock, most folks, they have no comprehension, even though they'll, they'll say, oh, I know all about Tavistock. Now, you don't know squat about Tavistock. And I can tell just by the way that you're commenting that you have no idea what Tavistock is all about, how it's all tied into the Fabian Society, the Rockefeller Foundation, to the Council on Foreign Relations, the Committee of 300, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergs, Davos, these these organizations, they're all, I mean, they this is the internationalist structure that is ruling the world. And if you don't want to take the time to understand it, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. And uh, Tavistock, it's not just about mind control from the standpoint of a lot of people just think mind control is hypnosis. No, it's not. The stuff that they're into will just will, will make your eyes cross. Um, they have fully adopted occultism and magic into their portfolio of how they get things done. And uh, to really get an understanding of it, there is a book I recommend. It's by Daniel Estulin, E-S-T-U. L-I-N. And Daniel wrote the book going back about, I I don't know, 10 years ago, eight to 10 years ago. Read that book. It's about 200, 250 pages. And you'll have a very, very clear understanding of Tavistock and its tentacles and uh, how very, very far reaching it is. It has permeated virtually their philosophies, their approach and their techniques has permeated just about every aspect of society. And um, so that's why a lot of people, they just can't get their heads wrapped around a lot of things because they just can't fathom that 
the the controllers that their mechanisms are that onerous that they are that wide reaching and the thing is until people actually begin to understand that nothing will change because if you remain in a a position of unknowing and ignorance they're going to capitalize and leverage your ignorance and your your unknowing and they're just going to blow right past you and this is this is really why um we're in the situation we're in in the world it's because most people are clueless as to how the world really works and because of that this agenda basically goes forward with very little resistance it's just you and there's me and there's many others that are doing this type of work to try to expose what's really going on but the vast majority of of the people have no understanding whatsoever well even if you just say that paul mccartney was replaced even though there is rumors about it you know most people will just dismiss that out of hand as well and you know that's just a small aspect did the beatles write their own musics can taking it to the next level i guess they're two similar things but you know, it's just the lies just all encompassing. It's just so huge. It's like you can't see the wood for the trees because, you know, it's like the fish can't see the water, you know, because it's all around them. And to even begin to go into that, it's just like oof, daunting. So it's the old cognitive dissonance, pretend it's not happening and try and live your existence in this reality and, you know, go to your work and forget about it. But, yeah, things have consequences. Lack of knowledge, then you go and take whatever they're giving you and stuff like that, you know still visit your doctor and things because yep. of your evidence, you know? So you pay for it ultimately. You do ultimately pay for it. And, um, you know, the Beatles conspiracy is no different than so many other conspiracies and psychological operations that have taken place. You know, we know the Kennedy assassination, right? You know, a lot of people... In the, in the thing you brought up, the fact that it was the same day, it was a Beatlemania kind of came in just as that happened. It was like a switch. Yeah, the- yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. So what, what Billy's referring to is, if we go back to Please Please Me, that was released on March 22nd. It's 322. That's Skull and Bones, which goes back to Genesis 322. So go back, go to your Bibles and read Genesis 322. Okay. And they released with the Beatles on November 22nd, 1963 in the UK. They waited to release it in the United States, but in the UK it was released on the very same day. So Right. You know, we had the Kennedy assassination and then the Beatles roll out. Yeah. Right. It was from a from a psychological operation perspective. It's the natural order of things. You have this very, very disturbing event, the president of the United States being assassinated. And then they introduce this very uplifting event. See, that's that's trauma based. That's trauma based mind control. Right. Everybody thinks trauma based mind control is only negative stuff. And that's incorrect. There's negative and positive reward. Yeah. This is how they do it. So, you know, people, uh, they just can't get their arms wrapped around the Beatles being a conspiracy because it's a feel-good story. I've said in so many other shows that how could you not like the Beatles' Cinderella story? How could you not like that? Four lads from Liverpool connect with Brian Epstein, a record store owner who gets them signed to a major label, EMI, under the tutelage of George Martin, and then go on to unprecedented fame and fortune and thinking it's organic. 
Once you understand how the world really works, that you know that that has no semblance at all of being natural or organic, because this world is controlled. And one of the major levers, if not one of the largest levers in the toolbox of the controllers is the music and entertainment industry. Yeah. Hollywood, as an example. This is how they shape your minds. This is how they get to, to change your, your belief system, how they get you to change your values, how they get you to change what is acceptable. You know, there, there were, there would be situations where, you did accept certain types of societal behavior. And then after a long running psychological operation, people get worn down. And as they get worn down, a lot of them become apathetic. And if they don't become apathetic, they just openly accept the new change because many times they paint it in a way which is, Hey, this is good stuff. And this is good stuff. Hey, hop on board, hop on board the train because we're going to a good place. And you're not going to a good place at all. Just talking about the, the control in society and the music, I watched a documentary recently with uh, James Rio, uh, uh, Rio Deal. You know that guy, Deal? He was in uh, Black Sabbath. He, he appeared on that occasionally. And he was just saying, you know, he was doing really well. He'd, he'd, he'd done a solo album or something. And then all of a sudden, they were going to change. And all his type of music, just at the start of the 80s, was going into this box. And the kind of he said to the producer something, his mind going in there, says, yep, poof. And then they just, he was old school. He had to fight his way back and, you know, through the popularity of Black Sabbath where we got back in with them and then got D.O. famous again, you know, through his hard work. And, but really, they were ditched. It was just kind of that that yeah. realisation that, hold on a minute, I thought this was natural and it was all kind of, I'm good. And it was all of a sudden, you're not wanted anymore, end of. That was quite a big shock to them. But that just shows you how they can bring in the new trends like punk or whatever when they want you know and that's how controlled it is like this type of music for this time will serve that purpose once it's done can that can't last forever so we need to change it up whatever now this is a new thing and even i think when rock and roll started they had to have people like bob dylan and johnny mitchell and all these really fantastic great artists to establish the art form and then over the years have just totally degraded it to where you're getting you know, Miley Cyrus and all this doing all kinds of stuff on stage. You know, like Madonna, you see her on Jimmy Kimmel last week. No, I didn't see that. I try not to watch Madonna at all. <laughs> well, she was simulating giving oral sex. Yeah. You know, showing her butt was pretty bad. <laughs> see, what they did was they, Billy, they started, they had to start at a very conservative point. Yeah. Exactly. I think I had this discussion, I think, with Jay Widener or, um, or Crow. They start at a certain point because that is an acceptable starting point from the standpoint of what the public will tolerate at that point. You know, it's a little new, it's intriguing. So they can't be over the top initially. So then slowly but surely, I mean, the stake I put in the ground is 1960. And I know it started before 1960, folks. I'm just talking about, we're talking about the music business. And I know, you know Elvis was part of it too. And I know Elvis goes back into the fifties, but we're just starting with 1960, just a nice round number to move forward from and take a look at where they've, where they've taken music and entertainment since, since the 1960s. I mean, it's, it's not even close to being the same or similar. It's very, very different. And it has become very dark and it has become very decadent and it's extremely 
ritualistic because as I mentioned when we first started the show, this world is run by occultists. It's not run by your, pre your president. It's not run by your prime minister. They, they are all figureheads. They are all puppets. You know, a lot of these prime ministers uh, like Trudeau up in Canada, they, they're all tied back to the World Economic Forum. Young world leaders. I think that's the program that the WEF has put in place and has been in place for a long time. And so they're placing these players in key positions throughout the world. And if it's not a prime minister or a president, then these people are inserted into cabinet positions. Well, did you and hear other... about Jacinda fucking Arden has been given a, a position in high up in the royal family by Prince William? Yeah, there you go. Right. Unbelievable. <laughs> right. So that just right. shows you again how much they're all part of the World Economic Forum system as well. Prince Charles is on board with that, you know. Well, King Charles kind of, you know, get my head around that. But um, yeah, it's just a big gang, isn't it? A big cult. And people are just used to being taking their orders from them. And Nanny State will take care of things. Meanwhile, Nanny State are setting up their right. prison. <laughs> well, that's why they're referred to as the cultic elite. It is a cult. And they are occultists. And their occultism involves um, it's, it's magic, it's ritual, it's alchemy, it's mysticism. It's all of that stuff. Numerology, gematria, all of this stuff. We know signs and symbols rule the world. I've, I've said this so many times in so many shows. And I still get people that, that say things like, oh, I, I don't think the numbers mean anything. I think numbers only mean something when you're at the cash register at the supermarket and you're buying bread and milk and I need change. You have no idea how profane that is. So un until, until, a critical mass of folks get on board with how this place really operates, then put your seatbelt on because it's going to get rockier and rockier and the ride's going to get rougher and rougher. And, you know, for a lot of folks, this stuff is rolling up on their doorstep as we speak. They're starting to really feel it now. And even then, even then, they're still in denial. They just think it's some coincidental situation or circumstance that has overtaken their life at this point and they can't connect it back to a much larger agenda that's in place. I mean, talking about magic and stuff like this in the Tavis talk, you know, then the Beatles having Alistair Crowley and all we know about his connections. So the Tavis talk's obviously influenced by these kind of um, magicians. Yeah. Controls of reality. So, that's what they used the Beatles for. That was a pure magic. You know, they've came in with this, oh, God knows how long they've been planning it for, but it seems like they've had this agenda. I don't know if Brian Epstein's got the word with Tavistock because he's had a million pounds in to go and promote the Beatles in 63 or whatever, which is guaranteeing them success. Just two two years from Germany, they're on the Ed Sullivan show or whatever. That doesn't happen just by accident, you know, because there's money agenda. I don't think it was buying Epstein's money, you know. So where's he getting that money from? the powers that be that have this agenda and they've played it out to a T, you know, they totally transformed the 60s with predominantly the Beatles at the head spear, uh, you know, head of this uh, movement, the hippie tune-in drop-in, obviously right. Tim Leary and all these people, the Mary Pranksters are all part of it. Um, so, yeah, big massive CIA operation to get people to be hippies and wasters and not be 
critical thinking, well-rounded people, because obviously after the war, there was that generation not wanting the old way anymore. They knew they were going to be a problem. So get them loaded up and, you know, make money off them while they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, so the million dollars, right, that Brian Epstein had, um, this goes back to the interview that I put in the big presentation. I also had it in another presentation or two with Bernard Purdy saying that Brian Epstein had a million dollars in his pocket. And that was the money that was behind the Beatles at that point in time. Now, to put that into context, that's almost $10 million today in today dollars. I think it's like 9.7 or $9.8 million. And uh, where do you get that money from? Well, you know, EMI was, was tied into British intelligence and the British military and was very active during World War II. And um, EMI is also tied into to Tavistock. So, you know, once you know this, once you know how things connect, then the whole thing with the Beatles and these other bands, because it's just not the Beatles, it makes more and more sense. You know, so they, they paint this very happy, like I said, Cinderella story to the public, to the naive, to those that really don't understand how things work. And they just embrace it. They adopt the story. They love it. Like I said, look, I was a believer in that story at one time. So I'm not sitting here just knocking people. I'm knocking myself too, because up until 2016, I used to believe the Beatles story. So, um, yeah, so there's, you know, the connection points, Billy, I mentioned uh, a bunch of them before. Council on Foreign Relations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Fabian Society, uh, the Bilderbergs, the Trilaterals, uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations. You know, you have all of these. What do people think that these internationalist organizations are in place to do? You think they just put buildings up and they sit there and do nothing all day? That they play solitaire on their computer screen? These internationalist structures are there for a reason. And they're there to run the world. Yeah, totally organized. They They go about their business every day with this agenda they've got. We're just flapping around watching Coronation Street at nighttime or something, you know. Right. You know, we're not organized. Even food, we can't even supply our own food. We're dependent on the shops. Again, we're totally... Right. Electricity goes off. We are lost. Hey, what happened when, when the event took place back in March of 2022? And we had a shortage of toilet paper. What did that tell you? People got very concerned because they couldn't wipe their butts, right? And what were the controllers telling everybody? We'll tell you when you can wipe your ass. Exactly. (laughs) Because if we decide not to put toilet paper out, then... What are you going to (laughs) do? What are you going to do? Right? So this is is their way of of poking at people. And their, their way of making it understood that this is part of the trauma-based mind control. They'll do things like this. Yeah. And then as fast as it came, it goes away. Aye. But and just then they'll do something else. It goes in the back of your mind, you know, that could happen, you know, there's a shortage. Even the now, there's quite a lot of fruit and vegetables that are not making the shelves here. Right. Same here. Same here. Aye. But, but uh, going back to just to round out this whole thing with, uh, with, with Tavistock and, these genres of music, you know, they, the British invasion was completely created 
by Tavistock. People well, ask me questions like, well, what about what about the who? The who were part of the British invasion. It, they were a, a creation of Tavistock as well because Tavistock created the British invasion. It yeah. goes with the Rolling Stones. It goes with all of them. And all of these genres of music that follow, they all had a social engineering purpose. There was an agenda behind all of these different genres of music. And, um, you know, and, and you have to, people have to stop. You, look, folks, you got to stop worshiping artists and bands and celebrities and entertainers. Because there's a great movie people should watch. It's a series, actually. It's three seasons. It's called American Gods. And American Gods spells it out very clearly. That everything people are doing today with all of this idolizing and being plugged into social media and sitting sitting in front of your screen and, and doing Facebook all day and stupid shit like that. All you're doing is you're feeding what American gods refer to as the technology gods. And what they mean by that is they are taking your energy, they are usurping your consciousness and your physical energy because you're sitting in front of that that monitor all day, posting inane pictures, typing out stupid comments all day, doing inane stuff. And they're leveraging that. So while while most people, a lot of people, are sitting there doing that type of activity all day, the world is passing them by. A lot of stuff is getting done, flying under the radar, because you are focused on the wrong things. You're focused on nonsense. And most people have a total lack of ability to prioritize what's really important in their life. You know, it's just amazing to me. So anyway, I don't, I don't want to, you know. I just want to finish on that wee bit because I watched yeah, it. I was yeah. going to send it to you. Um, there's a documentary recently on BBC about the Rolling Stones. And it's a similar kind of thing where they're, they're talking about it in code. They're kind of like Bill Wyman even says, you know, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? And, you know, it's like, it's almost like it's happening to them. All of a sudden they've got this audience and again, they're just caught in the eye of the storm almost. So I'll send it to you. Because we did have that chat about the stones yeah. as well, so yeah, again they they do the masterful speaking where you you can watch it the documentary one way without knowing all this stuff and you're like oh wow you just automatically assume certain things that they're not fully giving you the picture and then when you understand the truth you say ah they're saying that like that but they're not actually you know like for instance in the studios of wild horses but you don't see them recording it right just things like that so yeah wild horses is one of those stories that if you sit back. And you actually critically think and you're objective, you should be able to connect the dots and figure out that that story that's told in the Muscle Shoals documentary about how wild horses got written and recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, that story is a fictional account. It's not true. You know, and and there are so many stories like that. You know, folks don't understand, like they, they will point to certain bands and artists. Uh, singers, and they will just blindly accept whatever they say in an interview or some kind of uh, rock documentary that you might find uh, you know, on, on uh, Netflix or something. What they don't understand is these folks are performers. They are entertainers. Yeah. 
So part of their responsibility to be a successful entertainer and performer is to embellish stories, to, to create fantastical stories, rags to riches or whatever, whatever the, the storyline is to pull you in. But you have to use discernment to, you know, and, and, and figure out that most of this stuff is completely made up. It's, it's not, you know, it's not true. It's not true. And, uh, but this is the problem, you know, when, when you're, when you're, when you accept the pop culture, when you embrace the pop culture, you're in big trouble because the, the pop culture, it's, it's intent is to pull you away from your true identity. It's to pull you away from your sovereign self. It's to pull you away from pursuing your own pure or true will. Yep. And disempowering yourself and giving your authority. You're supposed to be your own authority. And then taking your authority and then handing it off to somebody else. That's what the pop culture is all about. It's stripping you of being a human being. It's stripping you of having a, a soul. Yep, I'm can you know just to, I can't really be asked with even any more Facebook and Twitter. You're, you're supposed to do it in your position and get involved, but to me it's just you're fighting the big hundreds of people throwing stuff at this thing, and unless you've got a team behind you and you know money and stuff like that, then it's just like ah, uh, who who needs it? <laughs> you know, right? I'm right. just living my life and just do what I do, and you know, say la vie, whatever happens, happens, because it's just too much pain. It's like a big war. I've got to get this hit, and, you know, I could never get involved in it. No. But well done to those that do and use the keywords correctly, but then uh, any time they can come and strike you off and ban you anyway, so, you know, just you waste a lot of time pissing about in the technology that's here to save us, but it's not making things any better or people any smarter, really. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You you talk about banning and stuff like that. I had a situation going back about a week ago, right? So I'll just run through this real quick. I'll I'll just explain the types of uh, shenanigans that that they do behind the scenes, right? So I had a a couple of uh, videos up on my my Paul is Dead channel, and so there were two views of of how many views the video has. There's the analytic view, which is the a view that is that the content creator sees it's on their dashboard. And then there's the public view, right? Yeah. So if I go into my analytics, I had uh, one show. It's the show I did with Amanda. Yeah. It, uh, the internal analytic count of the views was over 12,000. The public view was 9,000. Unbelievable. (laughs) And, um, I had another situation like that with the show I did with, uh, with Cat from Supernatural Beatles. It wasn't as large a gap. I think it was maybe five or 600 views. That was the gap where it was higher in the analytics uh, dashboard. And so I contacted YouTube. Right. Right. So if you're, you know, if you have a monetized channel and stuff like that, you're in the partner program so you can get a hold of them. And so, you know, I get this person on the phone. He was very nice. His name was Mike as well. And I said, uh, he goes, how can I help you? I said, well, you can help me understand, Mike. How is it that the view count in my analytics is 3,000 views higher than what you're showing the public? And so he said, well, hold on a second. So I gave him the two, uh, you know, the, the URLs, the links. So he comes back. He says, yeah, I see that. 
I said, okay, good. I'm glad you see it too. We both see it. I said, now, what are we going to do about it? I mean, the, right. the public view is supposed to reflect what's being shown in the analytics. He goes, well, we're working on it. I'm like, okay. Right. So you know what their fix was, Billy? To lower the <laughs> analytics view down to the public view. Broken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, right. he's, oh, he's, you know, it's unbelievable. You're supposed to trust analytics. They're supposed to be the thing, but no, we'll just chop them. Yeah, we'll just right. take that out. We'll just take that out because we don't want we don't want your videos to have a higher view count, right? Because right. they they want the lower view count because aesthetically it would it's, it would say that there's less interest in the video or the presentation, right? But right. you know, it, this is what goes on all the time. The you know the censorship and the the the, the shenanigans behind the scenes. Anyway, I just figured I would throw that one out there. I mean, I there's nothing you could do about it. And actually, you know, when I when I saw <laughs> when I saw the analytic number come down like a day or two later down to the public view, I just started laughing. I thought to myself, "Well, that, that is one way to fix it." <laughs> uh, true. Uh. Yeah, and it's just it does it's a view reveal though. It'd be another wee insight into how they go about yeah the dealings. So yeah, well, let's get on the topic then of this. Um, presentation you've done and going back to the one in 2020 you've done the four and a half hour one laid the groundwork for it all and basically you started with rubber soul and how that was the story of within 30 days they went in or 37 days they went in and wrote all their own tracks recorded them and produced them mastered them and pumped them out and you, you can uh, hold on a minute that doesn't seem right right and then um, from there you've took it further to say about practically all their albums especially the early ones before yeah. Sgt. Pepper certainly seemed to be all produced, etc., by George Martin and the uh, Wrecking Crew model. Would you like to go yes. into that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what happened was uh, the way I got into the original April 2020 uh, presentation, I went and I bought this uh, DVD. It's a series called Deconstructing the Beatles. And it's they're very good presentations, but it is a presentation of the official narrative, but it's very well done. And the person who who does them is Scott Freiman. So, you know, Scott does his thing. He does a great job at presenting the official narrative. And um, and I have no idea whether he believes it or not. It doesn't really matter, right? Because yeah. I was watching the DVD and he was doing a good job of presenting it. So the premise behind deconstructing the Beatles and the Rubber Soul album was that they came into the studio with really no backlog of music. They came in empty. I think that's uh, what his term was. They came in really empty. And the studios are expensive, so it's not really a good idea to be doing that anyway. No, no, no. The, the problem with it is, we'll get into that. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Just, just remember that when we'll get back to it, is um, the premise is that they were going to have to write 16 brand new songs, original compositions, within 30 days. Now it's 37 days when we count to when the lacquer was cut. There wasn't the Beatles themselves had 30 days. It wasn't necessarily 16 songs. It was enough songs to fill up an album, but it's turned yeah. out to be 16. Well, it was 14 for the album and two for a single, right? A oh. double A side single, which yeah. was day tripper and we can work it out. That was the single. And so as I'm watching this, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a musician, I'm a songwriter and, you know, I record and uh, I'm thinking to myself that that's not possible. It's, that's not possible. How could you come into a studio and be guaranteed, number one, 
that you're going to knock out 16 songs in 30 days. You can't guarantee that. And they needed to get an album out for the Christmas season. And the album had to be in stores by December 3rd. So the Beatles came in on October 11th of 1965. And then their last day of recording was November 11th of 65. That's the third period of time. Did they not actually cut the US tour short as well? Did they have extra dates or something like that? That's the story. The story in in, uh, Deconstructing Rubber Soul is they had to cut the American tour short in order to make this happen. But that's kind of a, it's kind of a weird um, scenario because they cut it short, yet they still had about six weeks Oof. in between yeah, when the tour ended and when they uh, walked into the, uh, into EMI studios on October 11th. Right. So that that's kind of one of those kind of weird uh, narratives. There's a lot of, weirdness in the narrative when you really look at it, things that really don't make sense, right? So you would think if they had to cut the, the tour short that they wouldn't have given them, you know, six weeks of holiday or vacation before yeah. coming in. You would say, hey, we got to get an album done. You guys need to end the tour and, and get writing like right now. Start right now. Not yeah. when you get to the studio, but in any case. So the story is that they, you know, they were going to write from scratch, then rehearse. A lot of people just skip the whole rehearsal piece of this thing. They think you write songs and then you just record them. No, you've got to write songs and then you have to rehearse the songs. And that in itself is a process, right? I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, I was in bands years ago and uh, I, I was writing original music and I would bring the songs into my bandmates. And I would say, hey, this, this is what I wrote. What do you guys think? Like, hey, it's, it's good. Uh, or, you know, hey, we don't think it's that good. But if it's good, then what happens is we continue to to work on the song and there's going to be changes to the song based upon band input. Yeah. You know, the drummer might say, hey, let's do a break here. And or the you know, the keyboard player might say, hey, we're going to do this. So in other words, it's an it's an interactive process. It's iterative. But even it's in good. the past, lots of bands would have their songs they would write and then they would tour them for like a year and then record exactly. them. And that whole process of tuning them gets the song to where it where it is the song. And right. A lot of bands these days release the track and then they go live with it, and then that's right. where the song becomes what it's supposed to be. Yeah. So so what happened was, um, you know, I I looked at that documentary and I, I said, "There's no way, there's no way." So I started looking into it, especially the quality of the album as well. You know, it's not just some ramshackle put together. You know, those songs are amazing. Yeah. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. 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 Kind of <laughs> yeah, so there, there were two issues with Rubber Soul. There's two major issues. The first issue is writing 16 songs in 30 days. And there are folks out there that have never written a song in their life. Um, they have, they're not musicians. Um, they haven't recorded anything. They don't understand the process. Yet they think they're an expert on how this process works with regard to songwriting, rehearsal, recording mixing and so on, you know? So the good thing is on on my channel, I have a lot of songwriters, musicians, some producers, and, uh, you know, whenever I put this work out, I I say, uh, I I focus on those people that count. And what I mean by that is these are people that know the process and understand the business. So when they step forth and they say, no, Mike, you got it right. It's absolutely correct. That didn't happen. That's what counts. 
Not somebody who is emotionally tied to it because, because they love the story and they are so immersed in the conditioning and so dogmatic about it that they can't critically think. They can't break the programming. So they're coming at it from a very emotional perspective. This is why a lot of people like those types of people like to attack Mike, right? They just want to, they, they come up with all kinds of nonsense to attack Mike. But it doesn't matter because, like I said, I don't focus on them because there are people that count. There are people that know. And these are the people that can validate the work that you've put out. And that's how you know that you got it right. You know, so in any case, so, yeah, that's what got that's what got me kicked off with the uh, the April 2020 presentation was uh, deconstructing rubber soul. And there were a lot of a lot of holes. Like in, in other words, let me just uh, let me just do this. Yeah. So, as an example, this is in the new presentation, folks, in the addendum. So we're told that in the month of October, the Beatles banged out eight songs, which they recorded in 18 days, in a total of 28 takes, which was an average of 3.5 takes per song. Now, for those of you who are musicians and songwriters and have recorded. I just read those numbers off to you and you probably just took a step back and you said, well, that's a red flag. (laughs) Eight songs and only 28 takes. And then in November, eight songs were recorded in 13 days in a total of 14 takes. What? Oh my God. (laughs) For an average of 1.8 takes per song. Well, we so, have the Fab Four, you know, just the Fab Four, they can do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, that's the thing, right? So they will say, well, it, it's the Beatles. The Beatles can do that. The Beatles, you know, they okay. can do magical things. And people have to understand that the Beatles were just four guys. I'm not knocking them. They were just four guys. They weren't superhuman. They weren't magical. None of that stuff. They were four guys. Here's some some additional information, right? So if you want to see this whole thing, folks, watch the presentation, the addendum. So they arrive in the studio on October 11th of 1965. One day in, they knock out Run For Your Life in five takes. (laughs) On the second day in the studio, Drive My Car is completely done in four takes. On the fifth day that they're in the studio, Day Trip is done in three takes and drive my car in four takes. Hopefully that's what I said. And seven days in, if I needed someone and they did that in one take. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So what we see, the problem with this is that in order for this to work, they have to be working on multiple songs at the same time. It also says that whatever song they started there were no false starts. Nice. The song was started and the song was completed. And as they're writing the song, they had to get to rehearsing the song and arranging the song like immediately. And then to nail the songs down, when you're coming in with no backlog of music and you're writing from scratch on the spot and to knock songs out in no more than five takes on any of the songs is not Believable. It's not realistic. 
It's not real world stuff. And in the presentation, I showed a slide going to the White Album in 1968. And I listed a bunch of, of the songs from the White Album showing that 28 takes, 50 takes, 70 takes, 100 takes to get the songs done. So to think that they're able to bang Rubber Soul out, 16 songs in, in a total of only 42 takes for all songs in 30 days. That's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's not believable. It's absolutely not believable. And, um, you know, so that's, that's just some of the information I have in the presentation. It's, it was that type of analysis when I broke it down that I said, okay, this is, you know, there's something going on here. So that led to, all right, so they were in the studio and they were doing something. What were they doing? Well, they were singing. So their task for the 30 days was not to write songs and rehearse songs or, you know, and, and record the actual instrumental tracks. Their job was to come in to learn the songs that were already written and recorded. Because what George Martin did was he had outside songwriters, ghostwriters. They wrote the songs. And while the Beatles were doing their European tour and they were doing their American tour and they were doing this and that and on the film set of Help and uh, recording the Help album in 1965, you know, they had songwriters on the EMI slash Tavistock staff. And I think there were probably maybe no more than a half a dozen during that 62 through 66 period. They were heads down writing the songs. And I believe George Martin was could very well have been one of those songwriters. In fact, I have a clip where he says that the lead guitar part in Michelle is his composition. And Michelle is one of the songs on Rubber Soul. Theodore Adorno, uh, in all likelihood, had a hand in composing some of these songs. And then there were others. So while the Beatles were doing all this other stuff, films and recording the vocals for help and doing their European tour and their American tour, the songs are getting written. And then George Martin had the, the songs recorded. Basically, yeah. Yeah, he had them recorded. And so by the time the Beatles got into the studio, the songs were written, recorded. The names of the songs were already known. The sequencing for the songs was already known. Because this and is all the Beatles. Time, so 30 days, can't write the songs, make the songs, and then start doing the album work and the track list. And again, yeah. in the addendum, you did show how they make vinyls and the process that that takes and the length of time. So that had to be done either at the same time or well before in advance. Yes, or, yes. Or... <laughs> yeah, so what happens is the process is uh, the songs have to be sequenced. So when the producer does the sequencing, what you're doing is you're listing the songs in the play order that they're, go they're going to appear on on the record a side b side and uh, a lot of what gets determined in which songs show up in what which order on side a or side b is the run times of the songs because you don't want to have a lopsided album right you know side b has a tremendous amount of dead wax at the end so you want to balance it out and until you do the sequencing you cannot print the record labels, the central labels that go on the vinyl. Yeah. And you also cannot print the album jackets because on the back of the Rubber Soul jacket is the list of the songs in sequenced order. The official story tells us that they cut the lacquer on the 17th, the final lacquer, which is the beginning of the pressing process. But the day before, 
we're told that's when George Martin finished the sequencing. <laughs> so if you finish the sequencing on the 16th, there is no way to press the records after the lacquer is cut. And they had to cut the, they had to press the records immediately after the final lacquer was cut in order to get the initial uh, batch of records out to the stores on December 3rd. Because the way the process works, folks, is, and, I, and this is in my presentation, I intentionally included a clip on how uh, vinyl records are pressed. The label is, the label is pressed with the record. So at the time when the record is being pressed, the label is placed in the center and it's pressed, which means you have to have the final labels in-house and ready for when the albums are going to be pressed. It cannot be afterwards. It's not like they have adhesive on the back and then somebody's going to sit there and place labels on thousands and thousands upon uh, of albums, right? It's all mechanized. So the labels have to be in house at the very least at the time when the final lacquer is cut, because as soon as that lacquer is cut, especially in the case of rubber soul, they had to have the album signed, sealed, delivered in retail outlets on December 3rd, which was only two and a half weeks. from November 17th when the lacquer was cut. So what does that mean? That means that the labels and the record sleeves with the names of the songs had to have already been in place prior to or at at about the time when the Beatles arrived in the studio. In other words, they had to be done, ready, printed. And so when you do labels and when you're doing album covers, they have to be proofed as well. You know, it's not like today where you have digital technology and you can run something and do it real quick. Back in the day, like the album covers, and it's still done today. It's four color printing. It took one week alone for the ink to dry <laughs> on whatever was being printed. You see? So the point being is uh, going back to make this kind of simplify this, Okay. All of that stuff, the record sleeves with the names of the songs on the back of the album cover sequenced, the record labels, the center labels for the vinyl, they were already done. The songs were known, the runtimes were known, it was sequenced. And so when the Beatles came into the studio, what they were doing was they had to learn the melodies of the songs. They had to learn the vocals. And the way they did that was the instrumental tracks that were already recorded for the songs, that's what they rehearsed to. Yeah, well, they may have had a guideline on them as well, even. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then when the songs were completed, when they decided that the final vocals were done, and by the way, when they were finalizing the vocals, they were doing a process called comping, comparing tracks, which meant that they would do multiple takes on songs, and there was editing that took place to take the best parts of the individual takes and make it a and create a master final vocal track. Yeah. That's why the tapes were running all the time during Rubber Soul, because what Norman Smith, who was the engineer and George Martin were doing was they were under the gun and they, they captured everything. So then um, George Martin and Norman Smith, what they did was they, 
they stitched things together. They edited to be able to create that final vocal track. So um, that's what they did, right? So when they came into the studio, John, the reason, the, the way John Lennon was able to get Run For Your Life done in one day, in, in the next day, in five takes, was because he was played the song. Here's the instrumental track to this song, John. It's called Run For Your Life. You're going to be credited as the primary songwriter. <laughs> Let's do it. So John had to rehearse the song, and then they did five takes. And on the fifth take, they deemed it was a go. But the fifth take could have included bits and pieces from the first four takes as well, because as like I said, there's a process of comping. There's an editing process that takes place in order to get a final vocal track. That's how it worked. So when Drive My Car was completed on the second day, it was because the, the instrumental track was already there. They had to learn the, the vocal melodies. And, you know, and they rehearsed it. They had to rehearse the song. And then when they felt comfortable that they had the song down, the melody down, they started recording and doing takes. And then, you know, Norman Smith and, and George Martin would take those takes and uh, edit them and because they were comped, put them together. And then you had a final vocal track. And then what would happen is George Martin and Norman Smith would mix the songs down. So when they, because they already had the instrumental tracks were already finalized. They were already recorded. So they had to finalize the vocals. And once they had the final vocals, that's when they sat down and they started mixing yeah. the instrumentals with the vocals to get the final mix of the song. That's what they were doing with Rubber Soul. And like you mentioned before, Billy, I, I, I am convinced that's how it worked for all of their first seven albums, starting with Please Please Me. Well, basically, there is that clip before we get to it, but it's, a, it's a, the BBC interview where John Lennon says, you know, the best days of the Beatles were in Hamburg when they were abandoned, and then because we're kind of capable people, we became efficient recording artists. Right. Which to me was kind of slang for saying, you know, we could go into the studio and do what they were told. And the real Beatles were in Hamburg when they were just an average, even if that band, because, you know, Guys, they wouldn't want them to go back because they were calling them lousy and stuff. So they've just been, you know, a band with musical interests. Yeah, who knows? Again, this may be a different topic, but have they been groomed right from the start or have they just been kind of encouraged without them actually knowing what they were part of? There's that Faustian deal that comes to at some point. But, yeah, they've just been taken and says, we're going to make you famous. You're going to play along. You're going to play along. He's got to do this Faustian deal, whatever, right? Let's do that. It seems like a giggle. And next thing you know, they're just having to keep state secrets, but they're trying to talk about the truth, but they can't because obviously they're gagged to a certain extent. Yeah, the, the, the Lennon interview is very telling. He said they had become technically efficient recording artists. And then at the very end, he says, if you give me a tuba, uh, I can make something out of it, right? So, um, yeah, there's some very important uh, clips in, in the addendum. And um, one of them is the, uh, aside from the Lennon clips, we'll talk about each one of them. But the probably the most important one is the August 5th, 1966 BBC interview, where the BBC interviewed John Lennon and Paul McCartney at Paul McCartney's house. And August 5th was the same day that Revolver was released. And the interview was actually released on uh, August 29th, which was the last uh, concert gig that the Beatles did at Candlestick Park. So the 5th of August and the 29th of August, and both of those dates are, are pivotal 
moments in Beatle history, right? The final release of uh, the release of Revolver and then uh, their very last concert performance at the Candlestick Park on August 29th. But um, in that clip, excuse me, in that clip, my voice correct. <laughs> um, in that interview, it's about 20, 25 minutes long, but there's, there's six minutes of it that I put in my uh, presentation because it was the six minutes that where John and Paul were talking specifically about their songwriting. And one of the things, and I'll read it off here, okay? One of the th- things that Paul says, and he Paul drops some bombshells. Yes, yeah, really interview. Yeah, yeah. John, John was in a supporting role, but I mean, Paul dropped bombshells. And he said that um, the only time they need to, quote, force themselves to write songs is when an album or film comes up. So that was very interesting, the way Paul McCartney phrased that. He's got to force himself. They've got to force themselves to write songs. The official the official narrative says that uh, these guys are the most prolific genius pop songwriters of all time. So you would think that with those types of skills, those types of abilities, that that would be your bread and butter thing to do. Write songs, not force yourself to do it when a deadline comes up. That's basically what he's saying. An event is coming up. It's it's an album. And now we have to force ourselves to write some music. The, some of the ways we talked about that is just like, you know, sometimes it takes us two months. It's very hard to start off to get the first one and stuff. But again, it takes them two months and then we're going to go in the studio and do it in the first day. It's right, kind of, right. So Paul had mentioned that, uh, and John too, that to write songs, it's a process and it's iterative and it takes time. And he said that's uh, for, for Revolver. He said the first two songs, it took weeks trying to get just one written. And then here's the other bombshell, Billy, because a lot of people that are the, the, the rabid believers in the story, they're in the church of the Beatles, go about saying that the Beatles were writing every waking moment of their life. So they were, they were writing while they were on tour. They were writing in hotels. They were writing in limos. They were writing in restaurants. They were writing when they were on film sets. They were writing when, you know, they were on the crapper. Yeah, on holiday. Writing all the time. They were writing 24-7, 365 days a year. That's that's the, the rationale. That's the explanation that's put out there. And then Paul says, in the interview, August 5th, 1966 with the BBC, we don't write between LPs normally. Maybe one or two. Then we write a great big batch. (laughs) And then right after he says that, the interviewer, the BBC interviewer, questions the feasibility of writing 12 songs for an album or in batches. And then John follows the BBC interviewer's comment by saying, it is some days. He says, in fact, writing songs for Revolver was very impossible. (laughs) And then Paul drops two more bombs, folks, in this interview. He says, the interview is talking to him about yesterday and all this, the song yesterday. And then Paul says, we're limited as a group. We're the first to say we're not all that good 
musically. <laughs> this is one of the most famous songwriters of all time making this statement after they released their seventh album. Yeah. And what many people consider, many people consider it to run head to head with Sgt. Pepper. Revolver is a great album. It's one of my personal favorites. Yeah. How was it that you could put out that type of material and then step back and say that we're limited as a group and we're not that good musically? It doesn't make any sense. If you're saying that after you released Revolver, what were your musical and songwriting skills like going back to Please Please Me and all the other albums? I mean, you could, you could, we could argue that you can only get better over time. Which they weren't doing at that time, seemingly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's truly, it is, it's a bombshell. Yeah. Because for all of the folks out there that want to argue that they were always writing songs all the time, Paul is telling you, no, actually we didn't. We didn't write in between albums. And by the way, we're limited as a group and we're not that good musically. <laughs> Considering I've just released yesterday and these songs are definitive classics of our exactly. time. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and then um, he admits at the very end that he didn't play on yesterday. Did you yeah. hear that part of it? Did I? He said he, he didn't have to show for yesterday, yet the official narrative credits him for playing acoustic guitar on the song yesterday. But Paul mm -hmm. in the interview is saying, I, I wasn't there. I didn't yeah. have to show for the song. And George Martin said that as well. They, know there was, they got somebody in for yesterday. Or they had other musicians on or something. Yeah, George Martin had said that uh, he was massively speaking. He, I have a clip in the, in the uh, presentation, the addendum, where he says that uh, yesterday was the first time they brought in outside musicians, which is not true. Yeah. But we can easily point back to Andy White, yeah, who drummed on P.S. I Love You and Love Me Do, right? Um, and then he said that uh, that's how it would be going forward. I'm paraphrasing. We're not scared to use people if we need them. We're not averse to using outside musicians. Yeah. Now, what George didn't say was that we were always using outside musicians. They were always in the mix. So this is how it works. You have to, it's the truth hidden in, in plain sight. You just have to have the awareness to, to hone in on when they're telling you things that are truthful. See, what happens is with most what happens with most people, Billy, is they get caught up in the overall veneer of the story. Right? They they get captured by the the fantastical aspects of the story oh my god they did you know 16 songs in 30 days oh they're just so brilliant only the beatles can do this it's just absolutely amazing you know and it's the same thing that happened with let it be that's an example i used in the presentation as well right so let it be is another example of where they weren't able to do what they said that they were going to do they said they were going to come into the let it be sessions which was going to span, again, 30 days, the month of January 1969, and they were going to knock out 14 original compositions. And they were going to then do two concerts, and those two concerts were going to make their way into a TV special. What did we get with Let It Be? 
We got nothing with Let It Be. We didn't get 14 songs. After 30 days, they ended up playing five songs on the rooftop to an audience of no one, releasing a very depressing, (laughs) grainy movie. And I have a quote from John Lennon where, you know, um, the album Let It Be, which by Beatles standards is considered to be one of their, probably their weakest album by by many people. Um, John Lennon saying that he handed the the tapes off to Phil Spector and we, we, we gave him, we handed off uh, the tapes were a bunch of shit, pile of shit. Yeah. And he did something with them and he did a great job. So this is Lennon explaining his version of what the get back sessions were all about. But people, when they watch, like when they watch Peter Jackson's movie, they're, they're taken in by the, the back slapping and the laughing and, and just seeing the Beatles in the studio because people are just, it's the idol worship. It's, it's just, it's the, the whole thing is romanticized and that's what they fall in love with. They're not paying attention to the details. They're not paying attention to the fact that nothing got done when we laid up against the objectives of what was supposed to get done with the let it be sessions. And a lot of people don't know, or a lot of fans don't understand is additional work was done on the songs after January of 1969, going into the early part of 1970. So the get back sessions wasn't just a 30 day stint. And you have to ask yourself, if they weren't able to do it as a captive audience for the get back sessions, in other words, there was no, there were no MBEs they had to step out for like they did with Revolver. There was no two days out of the studio to do a TV special like they did for Revolver. There was none of that stuff. There was no, there was no one day taken out to finish up a, a fan club flexi disc like they did with Revolver. For get back, they were, they were a captive audience and, you know, it didn't get done. And, that's even with Billy Shears, a.k.a. Paul McCartney there, who was a professional studio musician and songwriter. And that's why, Billy, I think you and I might have talked about this. It's why they brought in Billy Preston. I don't think we have, but yeah, I'm aware of that. He definitely helped that album. I was just thinking, you know, because obviously up until Revolver, it seems like George Martin's had these songs ready, Beatles come in, and then this replacement of Paul's happened. Billy Shears has come in. George Harrison hasn't turned up to the studio. He's essentially created Sgt. Pepper. And then we get the White Album with all these different probably songwriters and Billy's probably wrote a couple in there as well. And that's a sprawling thing. I think George Martin would rather reduce that to one concise good album. Right. That's what George Martin wanted to do. He wanted the White Album to be a single LP. This is what I'm saying. Who's seems to be like George Martin's control after Revolver Billy's came in and he stepped back a bit, whether in an advisory or something like that. Maybe he helped in the recording techniques, um, Sergeant Pepper and stuff, but is it Billy's arrogance that then said, you know, we can get TV cameras in here and we're going to do an album in 30 days? Because without having those tracks there ready to go, why would they go and put that pressure on himself if they're not confident of doing it? It seems pretty crazy. Yeah, so I think what happened with, with Let It Be, the Get Back Sessions, the reason why they brought a camera crew in, this is this is a hypothesis that I have is because Billy knew that there was no authentic, genuine footage of the Beatles songwriting, 
practicing the craft of, of writing original compositions, of laying down the recorded tracks that you hear on, on the records. It doesn't exist. In fact, that was the major tagline for Peter Jackson's Get Back. It's the only footage really of the Beatles working in the studio. So I think what happened was going back to 1969, Billy knew that that was a hole in the story. Yeah. The Beatles had a camera following them around for everything that they did. It documented everything that they did, except in the studio. When they were writing their magic songs. (laughs) Right. Some people, one person who thought they were very clever, but, you know, not very clever, said to me, well, do you have footage of you writing music or, you know, uh, of, of writing songs. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do, but that's beside the point. I'm not the Beatles. It's <laughs> big difference. <laughs> okay. We're talking about what is considered by many people to be the greatest rock band of all time with the two greatest, most prolific genius pop music songwriters of all time. And we've got zero genuine, authentic footage of them practicing their craft of writing original music and recording the laying down the recorded tracks for the albums zero okay so i think billy knew that that was a problem and so some songs in the back of his head ready to come in with so he could just pretend he was making it up on the spot you know just actually go in there bare with let it be yeah yeah i i I don't think that uh, i think some of those songs came in um with at least um demo versions of them um Get back for one. Um, right. I've got a feeling. Um, so they're not just when empty. Then you think I've had these songs, and then they've tried to make a good album out of it, and just kind of done what they could. And the yeah, and, and think about get back as an example, right? I mean, there's 12 songs on the final album, and, and two of them weren't even weren't even written during you know the uh, the get back sessions, or even afterward. Uh, we had across the universe, which was written in 1968, and then. We've got one after 909, which which the official narrative claims goes back to 1960. Right. That's kind of interesting, right? The official narrative says that um, one after 909 and I'll follow the sun were actually written back in 1960. Yet. None of those songs, like, like um, um, one after 909 doesn't show up until the Let It Be album. And I would argue that although not my most favorite song, it was certainly better than some of the other original compositions on the early albums. Yeah. Why did it make it on Please Please Me? Why wasn't it on with the Beatles? Why wasn't it on uh, Beatles for Sale? I, I don't know. And, you know, and I'll Follow the Sun, which is a great song. I really like I'll Follow the Sun. That doesn't make it until four years later on Beatles for Sale. So it's just something really, really sketchy about the narratives around around the songs, around the, the entire uh, story of the Beatles. Now, going back to something you said before, uh, Billy, in an interview, it was in the 90s with Bernie Goldberg, said that George Harrison was a no-show for the Sgt. Pepper sessions. Really? Right? I have that clip in, in the addendum. Well, if George was essentially a no-show for the sessions, because Billy said he was putting a pool in or something at his... Oh, yeah, George Harrison, you mean? George Harrison. Yeah, yeah, George Harrison, yeah. Yeah, George Harrison. So <laughs> if if George Harrison was a no-show right. for the Sgt. Pepper sessions, then who played guitar for the songs that he was credited for playing on? Yeah. 
You see, it's stuff like that that, that comes up. Because within and without you, he was supposed to have wrote that one as well. He was getting into his yeah. guitar and all that. Yeah, and he supposedly played acoustic guitar on it. Although, no matter how closely I listen to that song, I can't hear an acoustic guitar on it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's it's highly unlikely that George wrote Within You, Without You, especially if Billy's telling us that he was home putting a pool in. And there's lots of stories of during Sergeant Pepper's, I think, of Billy going back in the studio at night and re-recording yes. certain things. So it's, it's essentially a Paul McCartney, well, Billy Shears solo album, and he's, he's introducing himself to the band, and, you know, the, yeah. the whole concept of it is, you know, they're just taking, this is the time where it's time to shift society and take them down the LSD path, and whatever, that's Billy's role, I guess, maybe the other one didn't want to, you know, if they had a would he have taken part in that? Who knows? He's just probably, because he was talking about, you know, Paul McCartney he was going to die and stuff, like I was having premonition dreams and stuff, so yeah, whether he'd have endorsed the LSD thing or that was just the deal that was going to happen. And Billy, in the background, he was contributing as well, do you think, to the Beatles' music writing, you know, without getting credit for it? You know, the song. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's very possible. There's no way to know for sure. But the uh, one of the stories that uh, lends credence to the possibility that he was writing before he appeared uh, officially as part of the band was a song in my life. So going back a couple of years ago, he said that he wrote the music to In My Life and John wrote the lyrics. And when he said that, the uh, the mainstream uh, media went into damage control and they had two, quote, computer models run, right? So this is the thing. This is how they get people sucked into like, oh, a computer is so much smarter than us, you know? So I guess if the computer said that, if John wrote the song, uh, then, you know, John wrote the song. This is this people get sucked into this all the time. When in fact, why wouldn't we believe him when he says that he wrote the music to In My Life? Right. The the mainstream narrative after running the computer model says that he, quote, misremembered. Now, you don't I'm sorry. You don't misremember writing a song like In My Life, which is considered one of the greatest rock pop songs of all time. You, you just don't forget. If I wrote in my life, I would not misremember <laughs> my part in writing the song, you know? So that to me tells me that um, he was uh, possibly yeah. one of the, uh, the ghost writers, professional songwriters that were, that was in the background turning out songs for them. It's possible. Yeah. And just again, talking about people think the Beatles, played on the, the own tracks. Andy White was officially credited, but we've got the drummer, uh, Purdy. Bernard Purdy. Uh, he's basically saying four Beatles, four drummers on Beatles records and Ringo's not one of them. Yeah. And, you know, he's quite an important character as to, you know, the whole thing he says is 98% of records in the 60s and 70s, the original so-called artists, they didn't actually play in them. Right. So to me, that just makes you think this is a factory, it's an industry you maybe got these groups that have got rough jams of their songs. One that sticks out, I heard Frankie Goes to Hollywood playing a bar on YouTube, you know, and they've got this version of Two Tribes. And then you get Trevor Horn, I think was the producer, and his version is just night and day. You can tell it's the same song, but what that producer done with it was, like, unbelievable. You know, it wouldn't have been yeah. a hit with their version. So to me, it's like all these bands have got their stuff, and then goes to the professionals, 
and they fix them or whatever. Yes. And then it becomes a sheen polished thing that the public are going to want to consume. And then the band's job is to go around and play that. And, you know, maybe if the song's been changed and they have to play the changes that's been done in the song, or maybe even it's getting played in the background a lot, you know, who knows? I think there's a lot of good bands who still play their music, but maybe at certain levels you get to they rely more on the backing tracks. And I think I sent you something recently about somebody talking about Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood, like having arthritis and like, you know, the yeah. have got backing guys and yeah, stuff yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. So, going back to Bernard Purdy, Bernard Purdy is a legendary drummer, session drummer, played on Steely Dan records, many, many records, many. You just look up, look them up. Played uh, 25 years with Aretha Franklin. And he was paid by Brian Epstein to fix and play on 21 Beatle tracks. And, and Bernard's referring to the 62 through 66 period. And, um, you know, I know people, I, I, I hear like the, the peanut gallery out there. Oh, you know, he's a liar. Bernard's <laughs> a liar. Bernard's a liar. At what point do you wake up and stop hugging the the dogma okay and realize that the man is telling you exactly what happened he's had threats on his life for telling the story exactly so i have some people say well how come other people who wrote songs and and you know session musicians haven't come out mike you know wouldn't they come out this 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 is what people they they just they, they just not there intellectually because they don't understand how the world really works. Well, I thought a very key point of that is where he mentioned that Beatles Records in America came out on Capital and another record um, company, probably because they were getting fixed by those yes. companies. Yes. And he had some rights to them. Yeah, and, and, and Bernard didn't just drum on 21 Beatles tracks, but he also fixed the tracks on the, um, the Tony Sheridan some of the Tony Sheridan uh, songs that the Beatles allegedly played on. But just to go back to where people are saying, well, how come other people don't step out? This doesn't make sense. Look, this is a deep state psychological operation. The Beatles were a major, major psyop, and it is still a psyop today. First of all, the folks that played on the records, the the, uh, session players were very well compensated. You don't believe me? Watch the Wrecking Crew and let them tell you how good the compensation was back in the day, the 1960s and 1970s, when they were doing all of those records. In fact, the tagline for the Wrecking Crew DVD is, there was one band behind them all. (laughs) Okay? As far as the songwriters go, hey, the songwriters are part of of the deep state machinery. It's part of Tavistock. It's part of EMI. And their job was to write these songs, whether it be Theodore Adorno, whether it be George Martin, or whether it be five or six other professional songwriters. That was their job. And they got paid handsomely for it. Don't think for one second that they were not compensated. This is not like some guy sitting in his basement and he he writes a song that he thinks is good and he hands it off to George Martin and the Beatles make it great and he's left holding the bag. In other words, he doesn't get rewarded or paid for, compensated for writing the song. It doesn't work like that. It's a machine. Well, they need the best songwriters. So exactly. 
good enough to pay the best to do the best, and then I'll make him far more money than yeah. you know the guys couldn't even make that money himself. So he's happy with his compensation, and then they're happy programming the world with whatever they decide. Another another uh, another narrative that's out there, Billy, that's not very believable is that um, you know John Lennon John Lennon uh, plays. We're told the uh, the guitar on Dear Prudence. It's it's his it's him him doing the the chord picking on the song, right? And the story goes that he was taught that by Donovan while he was in India. Okay. I can tell you right now, that's not John Lennon playing on Julia. Do you know who it is? Donovan. It's Donovan. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's, it's Donovan. I'm convinced it's Donovan. You hear on Dear Prudence. It's Donovan. You hear on the song, Julia. And it's Donovan that you hear on happiness is a warm gun. Those three songs. Okay. Listen to some of Donovan's music. Listen to how he picks his chords. And you're going to hear the same style of playing. Because in the presentation, the addendum, what did John tell us about his his guitar playing, Billy? He said that when you get right down to it, he's embarrassed by it. Yeah. He says he can make up a racket, basically, playing rhythm guitar in Hamburg. Playing rock chords, playing bar chords and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Here we have John telling us in plain English that his guitar skills are not that great. In fact, he said that they were primitive, right? Yeah. Next to B.B. King, he'd be embarrassed. Right, right. So how do you go from saying that to then getting credited for the types of guitar playing style and techniques that we hear on songs like Julia, Dear Prudence, and so on? Donovan was in India as well. Yes, few months so he's got to know them Donovan was very close to the Beatles very tied into them you know so he admitted something recently as well in some interview on YouTube you know he's alluded to that maybe it was one of your shows I've seen it Um, can't remember exactly but yeah he knows again he's done a bit of masterful speaking on the subject that makes me think he was involved you know yeah there was there was there's a friend of mine who sent me uh, a post from somebody that had posted something on a, one of these Paul is dead Facebook pages. And uh, this person said that they went to a Donovan concert and they had VIP. Maybe this passes. is a story. So, yeah, yeah. so they were able to, it was a meet and greet. And uh, this person had the opportunity to speak to Donovan. And he said, Donovan, you know, he's on age now and he had a cane and stuff like that. And he put on a great show. And uh, he asked Donovan, Donovan, how is it that the Beatles were able to write all of these fantastic songs? I mean, at the rate and pace that they did. And uh, the guy who put this post up said that uh, Donovan responded by saying that was there was a genius songwriter. That while the Beatles were out gallivanting around, and I believe, if I recall, that's a direct quote from the post. Okay. These songs were getting getting um, getting written by this genius songwriter. Then he asked. Donovan, who the genius songwriter was, and Donovan said, I've said enough. I shouldn't say anymore. Now, who was that genius songwriter? Many will guess that it's Theodore Adorno, and it could be. Um, But I have argued that based upon everything else that Adorno was doing uh, with the Frankfurt School and writing his books and his lecturing and all that stuff, that uh, the premise that he wrote all of the Beatles' music I have a hard time 
buying into that one. Do I believe that Theodore Adorno did write a number of Beatles songs? That's very possible. Along with George Martin, by the way. And like I said, with a cadre of maybe another half dozen songwriters. It's interesting. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, wrote me and said that when he goes back, when he goes back and he listens to the, the Beatles uh, music from 1962 to 66, um, he hears two different songwriters with regard to the songwriter that was writing John Lennon songs okay. and the songwriter that was writing Paul McCartney songs. Right. Okay. So th that, that was an interesting, this person's very accomplished. Okay. So they would know how to pick this out and hear this, but he hears, in other words, he hears two distinct different styles. So that would say that there was a songwriter or maybe a couple of songwriters that had a certain style where they were writing songs for Lennon. And then those songs are credited to John Lennon. Yeah. And then there was a, a well, lead song. That. Yeah. Or a lead songwriter with, uh, with other songwriters that were writing a certain style for, uh, for Paul McCartney. And those songs are credited to Paul McCartney, but also in the addendum, I, I replayed that clip with um, George Martin and Howard Goodall. And this Howard one. Goodall is, yes, Howard Goodall is an accomplished composer. And Howard was asking him about um, the, the, the complexity of some of these songs. Like how would force four working class guys in a, who were really a, a bar and club band to start with, how were they able to put song structures together like Yesterday, Blackbird, for no one? And so Howard, to his credit, and look up Howard Goodall, folks. Okay, he's he's an accomplished composer himself. He's no, you know, he's no slouch. And when he asked George this, and and it and this interview was in uh, a documentary called uh, "Produced by George Martin." As soon as Howard goes down that path, George does this. Huh. It's the Masonic sign for. Tell me, that makes me think, you know, the Masons assume other people in these positions are other Masons. Does he know he's a Mason or is he just hoping he's a Mason, you know? <laughs> I don't see how Howard could not be a Mason. I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, considering what he's accomplished, but who knows, you know? Because what was interesting in that clip was that even though George did this... He kept him talking. He kept, him he kept going. So the coach say this is a cadence, you know, this is very unusual. And he, George is like, oh, the boys did that, you know. These Anglican <laughs> structures in the songs that he was talking about. And and he was actually playing them for George Martin <laughs> on the piano. And and I didn't have the um, the original clip in there because of, because of copyrights. So I had to do stills and I had to kind of, you know, phase uh -huh. the stills in to show what was going on. But in the original clip, when Howard Goodall first asks George Martin about the song structures. George Martin stiffened up. Yeah. He went like he went like this. Huh. And the body language was I, I can't believe you're asking me that. <laughs> There's a camera over there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, George, he got really stiff. He backed up a little bit in his chair, and you could tell he was taken back by the question. And and the reason why I think it was so concerning to George Martin was because he knows he's dealing with a another composer not not some orchestra yeah, yeah, schlep yeah, yeah. you know this is a guy that knows exactly you know what's going on behind the scenes and and the the styles in which these songs are being sourced from yeah
So it was, it's, it's very, very telling. And then we have Ringo Starr uh, talking about the songwriters. Well, just the writers, but obviously referring to the songwriters. The writers, <laughs> right. I mean, and he didn't say it in just one interview. Yeah. Ringo said it in two separate interviews where he talked about the writers and he did not associate the writers with John Lennon or Paul McCartney. He didn't make the connection. No. He let the audience speculate and make the connection because people would think, oh, well, who else would he be talking about? He never says Paul McCartney and John Lennon were the songwriters. He said they were mainly the singers. I mean, it's obvious. Well, that's another kind of way, but it's obvious. If we don't say John and Paul would change their writing style. That's what you would say. You know, you wouldn't refer to the guys in the group as the writers. Right. You know, you would say hey, John and Paul would have changed their style there and we kind of got a bit more Sergeant Pepper and whoever. Of course. You know, of course, you would have said John and Paul were great songwriters. They changed up and they brought a different feel to the music. All this stuff. I mean, it would have been John and Paul. You don't say the writers. <laughs> again, they're giving away in plain sight. And it's almost, again, like that, you know, the thing that they got to reveal themselves, tell you the truth. Yeah. But um, then if you can't see it, then it's your problem. So they're kind of involved in the conspiracy as well, obviously. Yeah. You know. And we have George saying that he and Ringo never practiced. Hi. They were just could turn up and then when they need an album made, George would, uh, Ringo would know what to play at the right fill and George could come in and do what he needs to do and that's it. It's the only time he needs to pick up a guitar. <laughs> George said that th there were times when years went by where he didn't pick up the guitar. And he would just show up in the studio when he had to make, like you said, make an album. Well, you and I both know, Billy, that's that's impossible. I mean, you do you do not not play the guitar for six months, a year, two years, whatever it may be, and then show up in the studio no. and rely on muscle memory yeah. to get you back into the flow of things. I mean, that's ridiculous. See, that's the thing. A lot of folks don't understand. I mean, the music business is a business. Yep. Well, to me, to me, it's like he knows because he says he could be a guitar player if he practiced. Right. But to me, it's almost like what's the point in practicing? It's all done by this musicians, and I'm George Harrison, and I'm not going to be as good as the guys who are going to play my record anyway, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, what's the point of me practicing? It's all a facade almost. Because if you wanted to get good, surely if you could be good at guitar, well, put the effort in. You're, you know, you can go do gigs with hundreds of people. Right. But it's just like, what's the point? I'm bought and sold kind of thing and I just turn up and the album gets made and you know that's that's what I got from that yeah I, I mean I put a lot of stuff in in this in the addendum uh, a couple of, of the clips I pay I played multiple times yeah I noticed and that something you've done before but it's like it does drive the message home yeah you have to drive the message home that's why I did it because you know what happens is um, people will watch it once they're like hmm, you know that's kind of interesting and then if you don't go back to it, they just kind of forget about it. Right. So I would wait until, you know, another moment where that clip was uh, was important to what I was talking about. And I would play it again. Yeah, It's it like the clip where, you know, we're told that between the two of them, between 1956 and 1962, between John and Paul McCartney, um, they wrote 100 songs. Right. Yet they meet George Martin in 1962 is like, they had nothing behind them. Love the best thing do, they had right. was Love Me Do. And that's even if they actually wrote Love Me Do. Well, I, doubt, I doubt that. But basically, 
that was their starter for tennis because that's not the big hit we wanted. I guess would it be too much to come up with a big hit straight away guess, to build them up a wee bit, you know? And um, yeah. so what we do was a nice wee one, nothing extraordinary, but it was a good little tune, you know, enough to get them a wee bit notoriety and then building that, you know? Well, love me do. Yeah, yeah, love, love me do. But George Martin said that love me do was not the hit that he was looking for. So right. what George Martin was saying is, okay, it's a song, but that song's not going to number one. That song's not going to chart. That's what George Martin was saying. So we've got to find music for you. Like it's the, it's the Mersey Beat article from 1962 that said that yeah. they were flying to London to record songs that were written for them. Yeah. By George Martin. <laughs> Given to them by their recording manager, their producer, George Martin. There's just so much stuff out there. And, um, you know, it, it, folks, it just, you have to, you have to let go of the baggage. You have to let go of the dogma. You have to realize that our entire reality is filled with official narratives, lies, and deception. Yeah, all of it. And we could talk about, you know, what took place back in September 11. I got a speaking code here because I want to try to put this on YouTube. Talk about the Kennedy assassination. We could talk about the moon landings. We could talk about we could talk about everything. We can go back to March of 2020. They pulled yeah. that off. How many people to this day <laughs> still believe that what they took everybody through, starting in March of 2020, was real. Well, put it this way, I've just lost another job for trying to educate people with that and then going through the roof because I'm the devil. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but that's the thing, Billy. You and I talked about that before we got started. We live, look, we live in a reality that consists of a lot of people who simply cannot critically think. We can't they, talk. This is the thing. You can't, you can't even enter a discussion with them because no. emotion just comes up to there and then it fries their brain and just then they've lost it. <laughs> it's all based on emotions. And and if you read the book by Daniel Esterlin on Tavistock, this is a key component of Tavistock's strategy to get you into an emotional state. Because when you when you're in an emotional state, you're irrational. You drop down to your reptilian brain type of functioning, flight or fight. Uh, you become very angry. Uh, you lash out. Uh, you attack. Also, uh, along with that is a uh, a process where Tavistock, the book, you know, this they 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 figured this out. People uh, resort back to an infantile type of uh, way of thinking, a mindset. That they're no longer adults who can rationally think and reason. They fall back into a helpless state. And they actually use the term an infantile way of being, you know, well, way of you, thinking and behaving. If you, at, if you look at the big thing that happened, you know, March 2020, then just or what happened after it, do this, walk here, go here, red light, green light, you know. Right. <laughs> Right. It, it, was, it was all it was all dictating to you what was acceptable and what was not. It was it was like you're back in second grade. It's like you're back in in grade school. Mm -hmm. And when I, we talked about in the very beginning about trauma based mind control, this is all part of trauma based mind control at 
an unbelievable level, an incredible level. Yep. And, um, you know, the record industry, the, the music industry, entertainment, as we said before, is huge. It's a gigantic lever for them to manipulate people and make them believe certain things and to to go along with certain things that under normal circumstances, people just, you know, they would not. But then people are not rationally thinking anymore. Everything is based upon emotion. It's um, go along to get along. Yep. Nobody is standing in their own authority. They've given up their, because they've given up their authority, they've lost their empowerment. They've disempowered themselves. Well, I'm just one person. What can I do attitude as well? Nobody realizes the power that people do have if they put their mind to something. I was going to ask you, have you ever seen a movie called Josie and the Pussycats? Uh, the, the the movie? No, I never watched the movie. Uh, there was a car based on a cartoon strip. Yeah, I remember the cartoon, yeah. You, well, you might enjoy the movie. It goes into all this in quite a fun way. And, Does it? Oh, I, big time. It just shows you, like, you know, blue is the new pink. You've got to play the record in the store and literally girls in the store, like, oh, we need to buy this, you know, because that's... Right. And they've got this control center underground, and that's where they put all the subliminal messages on the CDs and stuff like that. And just shows you how they control this band from nothing, and they think they're famous, and then it discovers they realize, you know, it's been made to happen for them. And it's a fun movie, yeah. You should, I'll check it out and send it to yeah, you. Yeah, I will check it out. And it, the thing, too, Billy, is people have to, uh, they really have to give up the idolizing and the worship, as we said earlier in the show. You know, whether you realize it or not, when you worship a band, an artist, an entertainer, a celebrity, they are they are in a role of like a, a lesser god. And as I mentioned before, what they're doing is that usurping your consciousness. That's your non-physical energy. They're, they're usurping your thoughts because you're so focused on that. And they're also usurping your physical energy because you're actually spending money on their merchandise, their CDs, their concerts and T-shirts and all of that stuff. I mean, it's okay to be a fan and appreciate somebody's work and buy their stuff and you know, whatever, but when you come obsessed with it and it takes yeah. over and you worship it and you put them on a pedestal and that kind of stuff. You know? Yeah, I mean, people, there are a lot of people that they just, they just absorb every word huh. that these celebrities, these entertainers and these artists say as if, yeah. There's some kind of, you know, sage, right? There's some kind of seer. There's some kind of unbelievable ultimate wisdom that, you know, that they're espousing. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's nonsense. You have to understand that these people were placed there. They're props in the theater of the absurd. Yeah. And as, as long as you continue to latch onto them and, and, and you know, you you follow them to such a degree that you're actually taking away from your own life. Yeah. Seriously. If you want to invest in someone, invest in yourself. Invest, do, do your own creative things. Yeah. I mean, I know people who are like adults, you know, <laughs> it's like 30, 40 years old and they're still getting boy band posters on their wall and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, oh. it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Look, like I said, I was a Beatle freak. I, I had all kinds of Beatle stuff, you know, posters and stuff. I, you still see some of the stuff. I got, you know, Abbey Road up here and I moved a lot of stuff. 
Um, but uh, I have a lot of memorabilia and merchandise over the years because I started this when I was like, you know, eight years old. I'm 64 now. Mm. But over the last seven years, no, I, you know, Billy, I, I stopped. I, I just can't participate in this reality anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a certain level of interaction you have to have because we're operating within their construct. They created this reality. They can, they created the, you know, the, um, the companies that we have to deal with uh, the infrastructure and all that stuff. But to the degree where you can step outside of it and reclaim a big piece of your own sovereignty, then you need to do that. You really do. Yep, definitely. It's, they don't make it easy. You know, money is the factor that keeps people in the system and stuff like that. And to do anything, you think you need money, you know. So, but you have to try and become sovereign somehow, even though the world's about to end and financial collapses and all the rest of it, because Christ knows what's coming, you know. And it's been a crazy, crazy ride this world. And yeah, I mean, I've been a fan. I fell for the rock and roll thing back in the day tried to be a rock star and tried to live the lifestyle and be wild and crazy and got all these books of, you know, Woodstock and Monterey and all the Jefferson Airplane and all yeah. this. And you think, oh, it's so cool, these guys. And But actually, they're getting their tools as well. They're getting used, you know. Yes. Like, you know, they were fucking themselves up. They thought they were rock stars and living it. But actually, the companies didn't give a fuck about them. If they die, whatever, on the next one, you know, Jimi Hendrix, great guitar player where he surely had people feeding him drugs and telling right. him to do this or do that, you know. So their life isn't as glamorous and stuff as it's sold. And yet so many youth these days they think it's still cool to get fucked up and emulate these people and live this debauched rock and roll drinking lifestyle. And that culture is very, very detrimental. You know, the amount of alcohol. You notice the alcohol never disappeared off the shelves, only toilet paper. Exactly. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no shortage of vodka, that's for sure. Well, again, if the world never drank for a year, it'd be a completely different place. You know, people sobered up and focused on healing, but that's not the priority. People are still wanting to numb the pain of this world out. And it does take a certain amount of almost bravery to look at yourself and yeah. to say, I need to change. That's where people, you know, fall down. Point fingers galore is everyone else's fault. But their own life, you can only change yourself and improve yourself and people don't want to put that effort in. No, they don't. You know, I've said for a very long time, it's an individual journey. And you have to work on yourself first. See, the controllers want community-based stuff. They want communal thinking. Yeah. And when you think in terms of community first, what happens is you are uh, not working on yourself as an individual. And then what winds up happening is you have weak individuals. They're not resourceful. Yeah. They're not resilient. They're not creative. And so you have a community that has those same attributes. Well, they're not the creative. Vehicle. They're not resourceful, right? So that's why you have to work on yourself first. You have to be a very strong individual, uh, be resourceful, be creative, be resilient. And then, then you form a community based upon strong individuals. Then you have a very strong community. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why, like, your family is your community. Right. That, that's a, it's a community. But the family has to have very strong, um, a, a very strong structure with regard to the mother and father. So if you have a very strong mother and father with with 
good morals and ethics, good discipline, then the children, you know, that community, the family unit is going to reflect those types of traits and attributes. That's why they spent so much time destroying the family structure. Yep. What do you think about, they do. What do you think about, obviously they've got these songs of the Beatles, but the lyrics and what they were saying and all you need is love and this hippie thing, and you know, do you think there was anyone trying to do any good with these lyrics that were put out there? Did they actually inspire people, you know, make them, because there's lots of songs like, like, hey, brother, let's get together, love one another and all this kind of stuff and positive vibe songs. Do you think there's something with a good intention behind some of that and putting the Beatles on? Do you think that was all like the, you know, Madame Blavatsky kind of, you know, new age kind of lean-ins or getting people to go down? Do you think it was more nefarious than enlightening? You know what I mean? With the Beatles lyrics and stuff. Yeah, I think that um, there were songs, obviously, that had uh, positive lyrics and good intentions, right? But the problem we have is that it is tucked in within the construct of an agenda, yeah. which is, uh, it started off with the human potential movement. And that was, Willis Harmon was heavily into that. He was a social scientist and uh, he was there with Theodore Adorno and everybody else from Tavistock, the Frankfurt School, the Rockefeller Foundation and Stanford Research Institute and the CIA and MI6. Um, so it was a message that was, it was a good message in a lot of these songs that was tucked within an overall agenda where they made you feel good. Yeah. And the message resonated, but they were not taking it in that direction. Do you yeah. follow what I'm saying? It's, it's almost like the way I kind of see it is they dangled a carrot because they know what motivates humans. Humans by very nature, I mean, they're not violent. Nobody, I don't know of anybody. I mean, it's just, obviously there's going to be people that are off center or whatever uh, who want to hurt other people. But the vast majority of humans don't wake up every morning and say, oh, I want to hurt somebody or I'm going to do something bad today or evil today. They just want to get on with their life. They want to have a good life. They want to take care of their family. That's what they want to do. They want to hang with their friends. And, uh, but I think that that's what they did. I think they created a lot of songs where it was very feel good. Um, but it was a carrot. And they just dangled that carrot along and mm. people followed. And then what they did was then they threw the switch. Right? When you think about it, we don't have a lot of those songs anymore, Billy. We really don't. No, I mean, it's totally you know, a, a lot of the songs today, like if we go into rap and stuff like that and, and, and hip hop, um, you know, a lot of that stuff is really nasty stuff. Not all of it. Okay. So I don't want to insult all the rap and hip hop, hip hop fans out there, but I'm just saying, you know, rap was created for a reason. And rap has that constant beat, the lyrics. It's, it's, it was created to be hypnotic right out of the chute and to put people into a trance and actually the, the vibrations the vibration of music has a lot of effect on, on people's moods and so on. So that's what I think they did. Um, you know, cause I, I listen, I go back to a lot of songs and I love them. You know um, I love the song by Johnny Nash. I, I think it was Johnny Nash. I can see clearly now. Yeah. I love, I always love that song, you know, and uh, it's, it, I go, I go back a ways, you know, but 
Um, just you know, just on that topic, it could be a great song. It's really beautiful, but you probably heard the guy John Todd, who was a, a in the Satanist and record yeah. and he says that they do these black magic, black magic. You know, again, that's just in to do the subliminal and the master. So then, even if it's got positive messages on it, you're still listening to their intent, yeah. subconscious. So that's an element of it, you know. Yeah, it's it. What it what it is is it's been a slow, methodical, incremental march. You know, that's why I was saying before the the, the different genres um, are different components or different phases or stages of the overall uh, conditioning program that they have out there. You know, so. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of good music out there. In fact, I was listening to uh, um, an interview by uh, Alan Watt. And oh, Alan was saying that... Of, uh, that at the end of an addendum. At the very it? end of... Yeah, ah. I, I put an Alan Watt... Uh, actually, two Alan Watt clips at the very end of my new presentation, the addendum. And uh, I, I don't know if this was in the addendum, uh, but it was another piece I was listening to and he said that because he was in the music industry and he was a, a studio guitar player, a session player. A lot of people, I don't think know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. <laughs> so he was saying that the word had come down uh, at a certain point. I think it was in the 1990s or so that music now had to be oriented toward gender neutral. Actually, I was going to mention that during the interview actually. So probably wasn't the addendum. Yeah. 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 So that, that was interesting, right? Cause I, I thought about it. I said, really? So it went back, geez, it went back 30 years ago? No. The whole gender neutral thing? And he said, yeah, the word had come down in the music business. No more like he, she, all that stuff. I mean, I guess occasionally going to get he, she, but they were moving the majority of the songwriting and what was going out into the public domain to be gender neutral. Right. So you can listen to some of those songs. You would think to yourself, oh, yeah, that's a very inspiring song, but but people are interpreting it Based upon, um, you know how how they're interpreting the song. Oh, he must be talking about a guy, or he must be talking about a woman. But mm. in reality, that's not. There was nothing specific about a guy or a girl. Yeah. And so that was the beginning. When you think about it, it was the beginning of the movement going forward. And look at where we're at today with the whole transgender Hi. agenda, right? <laughs> Yeah, scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you know, I, I, again, I was been a couple of workplaces recently. One guy was playing this rap music like eight hours full blast, and I literally I was losing my mind. It was so bad to see the vibrations of it, and just the constant. Like I'm, I go on stage and whatever I swear, but this was just, just OTT for the sake of it, and just like can calm down. <laughs> yeah. And then, then there's so many young people these days as well in this other place. And they're like this hardcore doo, 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 and it's like full on banging. And they're like it for eight hours. I'm like, that is fucking horrendous. Okay. Yeah. That is just not music. And you try and play them some other stuff and they just didn't get it and didn't like it. It's like, has humanity been reduced to that? God help us all. <laughs> it's conditioning. And that's the thing, you know. Um, Tavistock is heavily into sound as a way to. Uh, to mind control and to condition. In fact, in the Alan Watt interview, he mentions George Martin was a person who was an expert in how sound affects humans. All right. Interesting. 
Very interesting. So, I mean, I didn't know that. I mean, it wasn't until I listened to the Alan Watt interview that we we got that bit about um, about George Martin and some more about his background. Because up to that point, I, I didn't know that he was an expert in sound engineering and how sound can affect the mind. Well, I did send you a clip on Twitter. I don't know if you had the chance to watch it or or if you're aware of this clip, but there was a one. There was actually two tracks that George Martin recorded with. I think it was Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan. Yeah. And in '56, he done this, and if you listen to it, to me, it's got elements of the Beatles kind of "All You Need Is Love" kind of production elements in it. And you're like, he was doing that in '56, and quite because it was it was a comedy thing. I don't think it actually got released. Until these days on YouTube, did you have you heard of that that track? No, I'm going to take a listen to it. You sent me the link. I sent the link to one of them, but obviously on YouTube you'll find the other one with a bit of searching. Um, I'll take a look. I'm sorry. I mean, I was uh, so heads down with this addendum presentation that there was a lot of stuff. I'm mean, I'm just catching up with emails now, to be honest with you. Aye, just the past couple of days I've sent it because I just thought I wonder if you've heard it because when you listen to it, it's like very Beatles, you know, the horns and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like that's quite advanced, I thought, for fifty-six. But yeah, it's an interesting one. So obviously, he said he had his background in comedy, but you know, he was obviously doing music production and stuff. He absolutely was. I mean, you know, they people don't realize that EMI gave the Parlophone label to George Martin. All right. So you know, EMI wanted to do something with the Parlophone label, and they handed it off to George Martin. Right. He got promoted and. He was given an entire label under the EMI umbrella that was his. So, look, you don't get to to manage a label like that unless you're doing really good stuff in in the minds of of the EMI hierarchy. And he's, you know, George Martin was very talented. There's no question about it. And his role, I mean... Well, John Lennon alludes to that as well, doesn't he? He says, you know, George basically took us on board. We worked well with him. He could tell what we wanted. But really, he was, he was practically saying George is the man, almost. Yeah, and the way jo- the way John Lennon explained it, it almost sounded like they were a kid in a candy shop. Aye. Like, yeah. oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And, huh. and so George would say, well, how about this? And he'd, he he would say, how about an oboe? And they'd be like, oh, what, what's an oboe? What does an oboe sound like, right? I mean, this is how John was telling the story. And I, I was listening to it and again, folks. This is in my presentation, and I thought, "Wow!" They, they, you know, the way John's telling the story, it sounded like they were, yeah, like kids in the candy shop. And you know, George Martin was the guy that was, you know, we could do a little bit of this, we could do a little bit of that. I'll put a little, I'll sprinkle a little magic over here and a little bit over there, and uh-huh. you know, and it's it's going to sound great, boys. Just going to sound just spectacular, you know, and it did. He did. So, so what you've done to me with these presentations, you know, every time you watch them, you just get to feel more and more just how regular guys the Beatles are and how, yes. much, how much can the shit's happened around them and they've just been going along with it until, obviously, Billy Shears comes in. He's a bit more up the ladder and he's took a role in it. And yeah, then- yeah, Billy's like in the inner circle, right? So, yeah. And when Billy showed up, um, that's when really George Martin's role got diminished. Although it was him and George Martin for Sergeant Pepper. But once the White Album session started, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, actually, George Martin walked out of the White Album sessions. He right. walked out, and we don't really see George Martin again until Abbey Road. Right. So, and Abbey Road is a spectacularly 
produced album, right? So that's, you know, that has to be George Martin's, you know, fingerprints all over that, uh, even though Billy was there. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with the Beatles, right? So some people think like, oh, you hate the Beatles and this and that and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't hate the Beatles, okay? In fact, I've, I've landed where you've landed, Billy. They were four guys that they got caught up in something. And I do believe they were groomed and handled from a earlier time in their life. But even their grooming and their handling, that's not their fault, right? There were people that were pushing them along. And if you're starting at an early age, let's just say they started preteen, teens or whatever, you know, I mean, you're being steered by adults and kids trust adults and you're being moved along the timeline, right? Along the climbing the rungs on the ladder. And, you know, they got themselves into something that was way above their heads, way above. And there's something he's later with John Lennon, you know, saying, talking about the Beatles and that kind of almost a derogatory way and say, you need to grow up to this interview and the world's not like that and stuff, you know. It's almost like it's, he's, he's been pissed off that he's found out. That's what the whole Primal Scream yeah. album, people were telling him how he was used almost. And I think that was got his goat a wee bit. And, uh, yeah. But uh, who knows? John Lynn, he went quiet for five years as well, didn't he? You know, yeah, he went quiet. Just like and- a recovery of how they were used and again in any way double fantasy is he the same John Lennon got to ask that and you know again did he go and just want to join the industry did he have that talent to make that album of Yoko no double fantasy and stuff or is he just getting used in later life and was he the truthful because he could have been involved in the Beatles and then he's discovered it's fraud and he comes out with bagism and peace and love yeah. was, you know people that kind of got a lot of when John Lennon died, we lost that symbol. At least he was the guy to speak up for peace and love and stuff like that. And that was a big thing and almost like JFK in society, people felt that death. Um so that could be part of the operation as well to kill the hero, you know, the peace and love guy. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean John had a lot of uh he he, you know, he wasn't a uh he wasn't, you know, always a a shining moment. I mean it was, you know, there's a lot of yeah. stories about him and his abuse. Um yeah. Uh, with Cynthia Lennon and stuff like that, you know. Um, but, you know, we don't know the extent of the programming and the conditioning that they were exposed to, you know. And uh, in the um, in the addendum, my, the presentation I just released, in that interview, I think that was with uh, Rolling Stone magazine, if I'm not mistaken, he called Bob Dylan a myth. Yes, I, uh, Paul McCartney a myth. <laughs> McCartney a myth and he called the Beatles a myth. I mean, in that one interview. So I think, you know, John, I think he, he had become a loose cannon, you know, and, uh, and when you're doing interviews and you're saying your best days were back in Hamburg and not when you were a Beatle and the best songs were when I was not a Beatle, you know, (laughs) this is, this is not what the control is of the official narrative want to hear and when you think about it when did john lennon play any of the beatles songs when he went out and played live when he played i think it was uh, in toronto or he played in in new york city i think it was madison square garden he played i think he played come together Together, madison madison square garden but i mean like 
He didn't play In My Life. He didn't play Girl. He didn't play, I mean, pick a song. The Ballad of John and Yoko. The Ballad of John and Yoko. He didn't play any of that stuff. So you have to ask yourself, why is that? I remember reading a story from years ago where George Harrison uh, was on tour and he was playing music, you know, his solo stuff, and he didn't play any Beatle music. And the crowd had gotten upset and they started booing him. (laughs) And um, and even George, you know, he got sick and tired of talking about the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles. There's an interview he did with um, 57th Street. In fact, it's the same video that I got the clips in, in the addendum with Philip Norman, the author where he was explaining how George was treated in the studio by George Martin. He was dictated to, you will play these notes, right? Uh And, uh, you know, even George Harrison, um, you could tell, you could tell after the whole thing was over, there was not a lot of like warmth looking back at their Beatle period. And you would think that for all that the band allegedly accomplished as songwriters, even George, right? Yeah. Well, it's like the astronauts when they came back for the moon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's the same thing, Billy. It's, you know, they just didn't look like they just had a shining moment. Hey, we're the men. You know yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the thing, you know. Um, that's what strikes me. And when you listen to John's music, especially post-Beatles era, it doesn't sound anything like his Beatles period. Really? Yeah, you know, he, he took a lot of shit for... Uh, uh, sometime in New York City, you know, because the songs there, I mean, they weren't great songs. Uh, and uh, he got clobbered for that by critics and fans alike, you know. And I remember reading another article where he said that, uh, you know, he made a mistake with that. All right. Is that an album? I've never heard that album of his. Yeah, I mean, he had, you know, the, the first album, um, Classic Ono Band uh, with God and stuff like that. That was a good album. It was very raw. Yeah. That's you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the album. Um, but the songwriting is nothing like the songs that you hear no. uh, 62 to 66 or even 67 to 1970. It's not, okay? No. Um, we have the Imagine album, which I think overall is is a solid album. Uh, yep. Even though it's holding memoirs, he didn't write Imagine. It was generously credited to him. I think that's the words that are used in the footnote. But that's neither, neither here nor there. I'm just, just talking no. about the quality of the the music that we're hearing. And uh, I like Walls and Bridges too. I, I I like, I think it's very introspective, even though I think that Harry Nielsen had a lot to do with, with that particular album. Um, so I don't know. It was a very different existence for all of the Beatles once they broke up. Oh, I totally. You know, especially for John and George. And uh, even when you listen to Billy's music, um, you know, especially when he first got started, his first album is McCartney's solo album and even Ram. I mean, I like the Ram album. It's one of my favorite solo quote McCartney albums, Billy albums, but you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not really Beatle music. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself what happened. Why is that? Yeah. Basically they had awesome songwriters and it was a big massive operation. The songwriters, other musicians, you know, studio players and so on. Um, and if George Martin wasn't producing, you know, because the producer has a lot to do with what that record is going to sound like. Well, they called him the fifth Beatle, but to me, he was the Beatles, essentially. He was he was the managing director of the Beatles psychological operation known as the Beatles or Beatlemania. There's no question in my mind. George Martin was, uh, 
his role was just, uh, I mean, you can't, you can't overstate it. Yeah. He is what, he's the glue that kept it together and he's the one that marched it forward and he's the one that made it what it ultimately became. Him and I think that uh, working with Theodore Adorno right. as a social scientist out of the Frankfurt School in Tavistock. Yeah, and obviously enabled by all the right people to get on the right yes. shows and yep. stuff like yep. that. Yep. It's a huge so, operation. You've done a great job um, exposing that. What's next for you in the whole Beatles world? Have you got other things? Oh, my God. Well, you know, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to slow up on the Beatles stuff. I mean, after the addendum, um, as I mentioned in other shows, Billy, it, it's kind of like it's gotten to the point of diminishing returns. And I'm not interested in um, uh, Billy ticker tape parade stuff, Billy Shears, you know, Paul McCartney ticker tape stuff as he heads out. By the way, I will say this. A friend of mine who is uh, very credible and uh, who is, um, you know, he periodically makes his way into circles where the beautiful people gather, said to me that um, I, I won't get into exactly what it is, but uh, uh, Billy has some health issues. I'll say it that way. Okay. And he is going to be 86 this year. His birthday is either September 9th or September 11th. That's what we d- deducted. He's not 80. Paul McCartney would be 80, but yeah. he's 86. So what's going on then? Isn't that's what I that's what I was told. <laughs> but also you do see sometimes a picture of him with his wife, but he's a different height compared to her. Yes. I was yeah. gonna say though, February twenty-first was it or Oh to... yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, February twenty-first. So you know, in memoirs it talks about February twenty-first. And I did ask Tom about the date, and he says, Mike, I have no idea. He says, you know, what the date means. Um, he says, but, you know, it was there to be put in the book. So that tells you there's a certain level of direction that, that Tom is taking to, you know, Tom. Is, Tom is not three authors. <laughs> no, he's not three authors. I mean, you know, this, the people play, you know, the, the, go find something better to do, to do with your life than to sit there and play with anagrams. I mean, you can, you can anagram your own name and come up with something and then, you know, and, and even if it says, you know, he's three authors, I mean, so what, what does that mean? What, what does it mean? Where are you going to go with that? You know, anyway, it's, it's uh-huh. that's just silly stuff. Um, but the 21st, uh, what happened was I originally based upon some comments that had come through uh, on my main channel, they said, Hey, that's Shrove Tuesday in Catholicism, mm-hmm. absolution, forgiveness of sins and all that stuff. But then later found out that, it is. Uh, it goes back to an, an ancient Roman festival called Feralia, F-E-R-A-L-I-A. Yeah, Feralia. And, uh, and Feralia was all about um, worshipping and paying homage to the deceased. Respect for, for the dead and, and the deceased. And the way the legend goes... Uh, in a particular period of time when Rome was at war, they didn't hold the the festival, the festival of Feralia. And when that didn't happen, the spirits became restless and there were hauntings and all of that stuff, right? So that is what the February 21st date goes back to. It goes because Billy, as we know, right, he's an occultist, very much into the esoteric and mysticism and all that stuff the mysteries. And uh, so the 21st marked a period in time when he was paying his respects to biological Paul McCartney. And based upon what is in memoirs, 
it's telling us that date allowed him to actually detach his spiritual attachment to Paul McCarty. So in the book, it tells us that he has an actual spiritual soul attachment to biological Paul. That biological Paul's soul is attached to Billy's physical body, and so therefore two souls uh, inhabit the same body. And Billy depicts this on his McCartney 2 album cover. So if you look at the McCartney 2 album cover, it's him, this his face, the center of the album cover, and then there are two shadows, one to the left and one to the right. And the shadows in themselves have significant symbolism as far as the occult goes and souls. So some people are going to buy into that, others are not. It, it, it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. It's what Billy believes because that's his life, right? That's how he runs his life. And so that's his understandings and his philosophy and his spiritual leanings. And uh, so the 21st marked a moment when he paid his respects to biological Paul McCartney based upon that festival, that ancient Roman festival. And I believe that that is the moment in time which he believes he has now detached himself from the the soul or the spirit of biological Paul McCartney. And so what does that mean? I think it means that uh, Billy now, he'll still be Billy Shears, he'll still be, quote, Paul McCartney, but he'll be able to go do more of the uh, types of things and activities, music, painting, whatever it may be, that he as William wants to engage in without having to tie it all back to the Paul McCartney role. So that's what I think, you know, because there's some people out there, just so many folks out there, they just goes back to what I was saying before. The world is run by occultists. So there are key dates and, and stuff like that that are very important to them yeah. because you don't know anything about it and because you don't know what a, a certain date or or a certain symbol means doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything. Right. Because I had some people say, oh, well, the date came and went, Mike, and nothing happened. I'm like, wrong. Something did happen. But you have to understand the occulted aspects of it to understand what really took place. You know, going back two years ago, I said, I don't know what was going to go on with that date. Was he going to pass? Was he going to retire? I had no idea. I just said that the date was in the book. And because it's in the book, it has some significance. We'll have to figure out what that means down the line. Well, we did figure it out down the line. You know, in fact, Kat from uh, Supernatural Beatles Channel also uh, did a piece on it as well, Shrove Tuesday and the the festival of Viralia. So yeah, I wasn't the other channel. That's a really good channel. That and her Kat, channel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her, her, I mean, her channel's great. It's uh, she puts a lot of she puts a lot of work and a lot of uh, research into what she does, and uh, you know, and doing the voiceovers. That's not easy stuff. Okay. So when I did the voiceover for the addendum, that was 30 pages yeah. typewritten in Microsoft Word, you know, to pull that all together. And, you know, she has to be doing the same thing. You're not talking off the top of your head. You have to gather your thoughts. You have to structure it. And then you got to tell the story. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So, yeah. So I recommend uh, uh, subscribing to her channel. Yeah. Supernatural Beatles. Yeah. Supernatural Beatles, yep. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it, Billy. I'm glad you asked those questions. Um, yeah, and, and as far as next steps, I am actually in the process of recording the 10th song for my third album. It's underway. And I played it for my wife yesterday. It's just a basic rhythm track, and she liked it. 
thumbs up there. (laughs) And so I'm hoping to have that wrapped up within the next, I don't know, 30 to 60 days. It takes time. And uh, I'll have the third album out sometime this summer. And that's really what I'm focused on right now. That and my family. We have a grandson. Um, He just turned eight months old. And uh, we've got the family coming over for Easter. So we got a lot of stuff going on and uh, I've got to take a break from this stuff. You just can't keep doing it all the time. It just, it wears, wears you out. Well, you say that, you said that the last time and I watched about you in four or five interviews since then, I said, I see Mike's taking it quiet, but. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing I say it. And then I get, you know, uh, people contact me and they say, Hey, um, do you want to come on the show and talk about this? And it, you know, there were, there were people who contact me and I, I respectfully decline the interviews. Um, I, I really don't like doing interviews as un- unbelievable as that might sound to some people. They might think, well, he likes to be out there. It's not true. I really don't like to be out there. I don't mind doing my own stuff. I don't mind doing my own presentations, but as far as going out and doing, you know, perpetual, you know, interviews, I don't, I don't like doing that because really you wind up repeating yourself over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this Thursday I do have a follow-up with Crow triple seven. And that was because that was scheduled way back when. Okay, so this is something that was scheduled uh, maybe, you know, I say way back when, but two months ago or so. Going to do that. And then I don't have anything else lined up interview-wise. I did want to talk to you because you're one of my favorite hosts to talk to. Thank you. I always have a great time when we're together. And uh, and I wanted to get to you first uh, with regard to the new presentation, the addendum, because I know you watched it and and, uh, you ask really good questions. And you have a background in music. Well, uh, I was in the rock and roll. I know all the, I know the old, old stories. I can talk shape about them for ages. There was one documentary I watched in Laurel Canyon recently. It was hosted by Jacob Dylan. Have you ever seen that one? And it's got people like uh, no, I've I've seen that pop up, and I meant I meant to take a look at that one. Uh, you should watch that because almost at the end of it, who's Cosby, Stills, Nash, Graham Nash is in it, and. The way they're talking, they've always got this wee smell in their face. It's like um, you're pulling the wool over folks' eyes here. So it's a no and wink towards the end, especially. So it's worth a watch, that one. Well, is that the one where Graham Nash says, and some people believe that Paul McCartney was in Wings? That one, yeah, yeah. And he has a smirk on his face? <laughs> okay, I have that clip, but I haven't watched the entire uh, the entire documentary. Yeah, I think I may have it. I'll have a look for it. I'm going to send you... Some other things. Since that Rolling Stones documentary. Yeah, send that to me too. I'll, I'll look at Josie and the Pussycats and I'll let yep. you know if I've got this this uh, Laurel Canyon one. But yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Mike. I'm always here if you fancy a chat and anytime you want to shoot the shit, no worries. It's a great talking to you. You've done a lot of great work, so really appreciate that. And yeah, I love all your beautiful stuff. And uh, if new information comes out, we'll be, can be sure that you'll be on it with bells on. Yeah, if there's anything significant, I'll, I'll report on anything significant. But uh, if, like I said, if it's ticker tape parade stuff, not interested. Right. You know, so. Well, I've just put a wee link down the bottom there. I've not got a job these days. If folk want to donate to me, it's donorbox.org forward slash Billy hyphen Watson hyphen TV. Thanks for your time, everyone, for watching. Check Mike out on sageofquay.com and we'll hook up again sometime, Mike. In the meantime, take care and have a good day. Thank you, Billy. Cheers. Let's put this one.